Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Judges. Judges is the seventh book of the Bible, so Old Testament, early in the Old Testament. We'll consider the opening chapters of Judges momentarily. I want to begin a a new series today uh, on the book of Judges and to think about this together with you. Uh, Most of us would be familiar with uh, a couple of the judges. There are several judges, uh, approximately 10 are named uh, and have, if you will, special uh, attention shown toward them in uh, the book of Judges, but two of them would be the most famous, and those would be Gideon and Samson. So I would suspect if, if you are a student of the Bible at any measure whatsoever, you've heard of Gideon and you've heard of Samson. Samson is the last judge addressed in the book of Judges, so we will hold him off. His story is among the most fascinating. I would suggest most Christians believe that Samson was a failure, and most sermons you've heard about Samson address the fact that he was a failure. But you are going to hear an entirely different perspective from your pastor when we get to Samson. I think he's one of the great men of the Old Testament. So go ahead and name your children Samson if you want to. It's fine. He's not a bad guy. So stick around. Uh, So we'll look at those individual judges in due time. But in the meantime, we have to sort of frame what's going on. Now, the problem with the book of Judges is it's a lot of history. And even in these opening chapters, it's a lot of geography with long multi-syllabic words in Israel that none of us have ever heard of or ever going to visit. So I don't want to belabor those things, and I don't want to get caught up in, if you will, the dust that comes from uh, uncertainty of who we're talking about and where they're living and how that connects to this other guy who's living over there and all of that. The book of Judges will get you lost if you're not keeping your eye on the narrative. But I want to back up from that and again address the macro story. I have often said this, I need to say it a thousand times because we have a tendency to forget it even when we're dealing with our own personal problems. The Bible is one story. It is not, it is not a bunch of stories all put together as sort of an anthology. Critics of the Bible suggest this is just a bunch of hodgepodge stories Uh, that that really don't have any connection to one another. In fact, that's completely false. It's not true. Uh, One of the things that confirms the validity and authority of the Bible in your life is the fact that it's really one narrative. There's one story. That story begins in the opening chapters of Genesis, where in the third chapter specifically, God tells Eve, as a result of her sin, that he will preserve for her a seed, and the seed of the woman will do battle against the seed of the serpent. And so what you have, therefore, in the Bible is war. The Bible is a war book, and you see war after war after war after war. And where does that war most happen in the Bible? The answer is Joshua and Judges for reasons that will become obvious momentarily. So you have a problem for those who uh, want to judge God 
because in Joshua and Judges, you have this concept called holy war. You have a country coming against another country in the name of God. And as you know, religious zealots over the years, supply the word crusaders here, have used religion to justify their advance of their religious cause against other nations, and they've done so under the concept of holy war. That's not an unusual term. We hear it a lot, even in the issues related to the uh, Muslims' uh, advance, if you will, uh, across the world, (coughs) even in the last several decades. That being said, uh, I'm going to show you that the people of God are actually justified in pursuing holy war. In fact, the book of Judges is exhibit A for what happens if you don't do what God tells you to do, which is to go and kill those people. So, in this case, God intended to use His people as an instrument of judgment upon the Canaanites. They didn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They decided not to do it. They decided their girls were pretty and their gods were powerful. And they decided to assimilate Canaanite culture into Jewish culture and they polluted their own worship. And as a result, that angered God and God brought great judgment upon them. So we shall see again and again in the book of Judges this cycle of destruction self-destruction. It's a cycle of God told me what to do. I don't want to do it, so I'm not going to do it. Then God brings about the ultimate uh, destruction of them because they failed to do it. God rescues His people again with these pockets of leadership called judges. And these judges were examples in some cases of being very bright lights for God and in other cases being very dim lights, but nonetheless lights for God. So we're going to look at all these judges, and some of them are going to be better than others, and we're going to learn lessons about leadership, and we're going to learn lessons about ourselves, because we are like these people. Yes, we are. So we're going to read the book of Judges, and it's going to help us think well about our own need for leadership and our own desires for leadership and our own pursuit of personal leadership under the authority of God in our own culture. I hope it will be helpful. So we will spend uh, the next several, several weeks reading through and contemplating the book of Judges. Uh, A little further introduction, if I might, just to give you a little history. Uh, The book of Judges probably occurs over a period of 200 years. So, you, you can sort of think about that. How long does it take for the book of Judges from chapter 1 to chapter last? The answer is approximately 200 years. Don't know exactly the years that they would have, the book of Judges would have started because it's very difficult to date uh, specifically either the death of Moses or the death of Joshua. But uh, probably some 1,400 years before Christ, so from 1,400 B.C. to 1,200 B.C., roughly, there would be some argument among people who love to argue about uh, lint on your jacket and so forth. We're not going to get into that. Uh, But I would tell you it's roughly a 200-year period, roughly 1,200 years before Christ. Judges, the word judges uh, bothers us because we envision 
uh, our, what a judge means in our culture, person sitting behind a desk with a robe, uh, deciding things. That's what we think judges are. And by the way, that's what judges are. And you'll note in the book of Judges that some of the judges do exactly that. Not sit behind a desk per se, but they make decisions, they render judgments, they help people to think uh, about their behavior and so forth. But a better concept would be perhaps the word governor, or if you like it shrunk down a little bit, maybe mayor. So these judges are actually governors or mayors or leaders of tribes. What we're going to see is that uh, there is no uh, unified government. You might, you might could study that at, at length and, and fail to come up with an answer as to why, after the death of Joshua, uh, Israel went into the disarray that results here in the book of Judges. And, and part of the answer is they, they, they do not have a common identity and they do not have a common leader. But let me bring you back to some history to help you think about it for just a minute, because this, all this is going to play into our application of this passage that we're about to read. You'll remember that Moses is the deliverer. He brings them out of Egypt, brings them to the brink of the promised land. In Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies. He passes the baton of leadership to Joshua, he tells Joshua famously, be strong and courageous, and as the Lord has been with me, the Lord will be with you. And Joshua is this common leader, and he leads them across the Jordan River, and they come to Jericho, and they dance, dance around, parade around uh, seven days, and uh, eventually the walls come down. They begin to pursue the so-called conquest of Canaan. God has told them, I want you to go in there, and I want you to kill every one of them kill every one of them. We'll talk about that momentarily. So Joshua begins that, and, and in doing that, he is instructed to divide the land among the 12 sons or tribes of the sons of Israel. So Judah, Reuben, uh, uh, obviously Levi uh, doesn't get a tribe, but Joseph and his yeah, Joseph has two sons, so Manasseh and Ephraim are the two sons of Joseph, and they get half, a half portion, if you will, and uh, so forth. So the, the, the land is divided up. Two and a half of the tribes are what's called the Transjordan in the country of Jordan today. It's across the Jordan River. The rest of the tribes, nine and a half of the tribes, are located west of the Jordan or between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. So that whole region, all the way from, uh, from Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon, all the way to the uh, border of Egypt, all of that swath of land is controlled by Canaanite peoples. And God says, this is now your land. This is the promised land. I'm giving it to you. And you need to go in. You need to dispossess them, kill them, take their houses. You're going to move into houses you didn't build. You're going to drink from wells you didn't dig. You're going to assume the herdsmanship of livestock that you did not assemble for yourself. This is my gift to you. Joshua, see that it gets done. Well, friend, it didn't get done. It did get done a little bit. The book of Judges opens 
with the record of the fact that Judah did what he was told. And virtually nobody else did. They decided their women were pretty and their gods were powerful and we should just assimilate these people into our lives. And that is a real problem. So, we come to the book of Judges. And I want to note that at the, as we begin the book of Judges, Joshua is about to die. He actually dies in chapter 2, and uh, we shall see that. And as he dies, there is a transition that is going to make significant difference. So we're going to read a few verses in chapter 1, then we'll jump to immediately to chapter 2 and conclude with a paragraph in chapter 3. So we're going to pick up pieces so we don't get lost in the geography. Notice verse 1, Judges 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So that's how the book of Judges opens. We've lost our leader, and we need to know who's going to be our leader. Who should be the leader? Now, the short answer to that is going to be Judah. He's going to, and so there are several little paragraphs here that detail the conquest of the, what today would be the, the region around Jerusalem uh, of, the, of that land by Judah, and you will see that Judah uh, is for the most part successful, somewhat disobedient. I'll just show you one thing. Uh, verse 5, they found uh, Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and they caught him. He's the king, right? They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, the question that begs asking is, did God command them to cut off his thumbs and his big toes? The answer is no. But notice what he says. Adonai Bezek said, verse 7, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So what they decided to do was not to kill him, but to torture him the way he was accustomed to torturing the people that he was conquering. So this is an evil man, right? There's 70 kings now serving his table, eating the scraps under his table who've had their thumbs and their big toes cut off. This guy is a, he's a masochist. He is a problem. He is a bad guy. But instead of killing him, like God told him to do, they decided to treat him the way they, that he treated others. It's kind of like, well, we came in and we found out, hey, you know, this guy has this real interesting way of torturing people. I know God told us to kill him, but why don't we just torture him the way he tortures these other guys? Do you see the compromise there? Well, for the most part, Judah moves forward, but he is, does have a bit of a black eye here. 
And uh, verse 8 says, The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. So what we find in these opening paragraphs in Judges is that Judah, for the most part, does what Judah is commanded to do. However, that's not the end of the story, and it's not even the, the biggest news in the story. Verse 27 of Judges 1 tells us another story. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Ephraim, verse 29, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher, verse 31, did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Oblob or uh, we will not get caught up in these names. So the Asherites, verse 32, lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. And that narrative just continues to the end of chapter 1. They went in, but did not. They went in, but they did not. They went in, but they did not. So what we find here is that Israel is, for the most part, overwhelmingly disobedient. Which brings us to chapter 2. And notice that God begins to take issue with them. Verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bokim. Bokim means crying or weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So what we found thus far is this plan of God unfulfilled. Joshua did not complete the job. The people under Joshua did not complete the job. And the result is they left themselves in a very precarious situation. I want to leave you with one last phrase, the beginning of chapter 3. This needs to be in your mind as we think through what's going on in this first look at Judges. Now these are the nations, chapter 3, verse 1, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. 
It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. That's the most interesting verse. We could talk about it for days and days and days. And if it keeps raining badly, maybe you'd love to sit around and talk about it. Probably not. But I assure you that what's going on in these opening chapters of Joshua, pardon me, of Judges, is that we're being introduced to the circumstances that are surrounding uh, the people of God and their failure to accomplish what God has intended for them to do. Now, beginning in chapter 3, we're going to begin, next, next time, we'll begin to look at specific judges and think about them. But I want to step back and think about some general principles in the book of Judges that will help us as we think about our own lives this morning. The first principle is simply that God is holy, and He's called His people to be holy as He is. God is holy, and He's called His people to be holy even as He is. I want to illustrate this by calling to your attention Deuteronomy chapter 9. If you'll turn back there with me, Deuteronomy chapter 9. I want to remind you of this passage because this is God's instruction to Israel. Verse 1, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim. These are giant people, by the way, large people, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out, make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of the righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of the nations of the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. <coughs> that he may confirm the word that he swore, that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So he tells us here in Deuteronomy 9, it's very clear. You might be tempted to think that this is about your holiness. Now I want you to chew on this a minute because this is a temptation that we run into in our own lives. We think the reason the Lord does great things in our lives is because we are good people. We are deserving people. We are the Lord's people. And because we A or B or C or D or we don't do you know, E or F or G or H, because we are good people, the Lord has promised He will watch over us. Well, indeed, He has promised that. But in spite of that, we don't do that perfectly. We are not holy. 
We want to be holy. We aspire to be holy. We know that we should be holy, but we recognize ultimately that we fall short of holiness. But that is not true of God. God is never not holy. He's always holy. He's always right and true and good, always. He is a God of mercy toward those who are not holy. And so in our case, we are the recipients of the Lord's tender mercies in spite of the fact that we are not holy. We have a tendency to categorize sin, don't we? You know, we stay away from whatever the big ones are. You know, murder and so forth. We We don't do those things. And that's real good, by the way. Don't do those things. And we think, well, you know, because I'm not that. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a bad person. Well, you're not as bad as a murderer, right? I always think of the story of Joshua coming in. You know, the, the famous story of Joshua's conquest is Jericho. Comes to Jericho, walls fall down. They come in, take the spoils, kill the people. Everything's great. We think that's wonderful. But what's the next chapter about? The next chapter is about a little bitty town of about 3,000 people called Ai. Ai. And he has a man in his company of soldiers named Achan. And they are commanded to go in to treat Ai, though it's a little bitty village, like they treat Jericho, which is to destroy everything and to consecrate the spoils to God. But Achan discovers some money and a household idol. So a little statue and some money. And he steals that and he buries it under his tent. So the next time they go to battle, the third place to go into battle, they are routed. They come back and they ask God, what happened? I thought you were going to be with us. Why have we experienced this shortfall or this difficulty? And the answer is because there's sin in the camp. They go through this elaborate situation and they find out that the sin has occurred in the life of one man, Achan. And what is his sin? It is not that he's murdered or raped or done something that the world would say is wrong. Instead, he's a very practical man. He's a man who just takes a man's money who is now dead. To the victor go the spoils is the logic. And he takes his little household god and he buries it under his tent. And by the way, why do you bury stuff? Well, perhaps you could say because he's trying to keep it safe or it's because you're ashamed you own it. It's ashamed. You're ashamed of how you came to obtain it. Why do you hide stuff? Because you're a sinner and you're hiding your sin. That's why we hide. That's why we like the dark. That's why we like to do things with the doors closed and the blinds pulled and hide stuff. That's why we don't want everything known to everybody. We don't even want our words known to everybody, much less our thoughts. But the deal is God knows not only our words, but our every thought And he knows that we are not holy. 
We are greedy or we're covetous, we're idolatrous, just like Achan. So be careful when you say, I am holy like God is holy. Well, you are, but only on the basis of that holiness that's given to you or imputed to you by the person of Christ. I am righteous under God by virtue of the righteousness of Christ. And he sees in me the righteousness of Christ, but the righteousness of Greg has an odor to it. Be careful, friend. So what you see in the book of Joshua and again in the book of Judges again and again and again is that God is holy and he intends his people to be holy. He intends his people to be pursuing holiness day after 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 day. They are unrelenting. They do not compromise. They do not give in to crazy worldly things. It doesn't matter how pretty their women are. It doesn't matter how uh, advantageous it is to have these folks alive rather than dead. After all, we need household servants. Who's going to be our household servant if we kill this able-bodied man? We're not going to do that. God obviously blew it when he told us what to do. We think we're smarter than God and we compromise the will of God. God is holy and he desires a holy people and he will not rest until he has one. That's why God is, cares deeply about the holiness of this church. Because we bear his name. And what does the world think about God except as they know this God through his people? God is invisible. Except to those of us who have eyes to see, we see his hand everywhere. But for those who do not, God is invisible. But there are these people running around saying they know him. And if they know him, then the way they act is the way he acts. The way they talk is the way he talks. The way they think is the way he thinks. The way he, they feel is the way he feels. They think they know our God because they know us. And they're making judgments about our God based on us. You say, well, that's a risky strategy. <laughs> Isn't it, though? My, my, my. God is holy, and he and tends a holy people and he gave explicit instructions about how they were to pursue that there's a second thing that we see here and that is that disobedience is very costly very costly consider the disobedience first of all of the canaanites the canaanites you know these are the people that got commanded uh, to uh, repent they refused to do so they pursued other gods and God brings judgment through his own people. Turn to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18. I want to show you, you know, it, uh, it's fashionable among, particularly among Westerners, with which all of us perhaps qualify. Western thinking wants to sit in judgment of God and wants to say, you know, God has no right to judge the Canaanites in the way that the Bible describes that he did. Well, in fact, if God has the right to judge you, friend, he has the right to judge every other person made in his image like you, which is every other person. So God is God of every country, God of every continent. God is God over every life. They all owe their existence to God, every last one of them. And the fact that you think you're smart enough, wise enough, or 
pompous enough to judge God as to who he should judge and what way he should judge them. You don't get to decide what is fair. Fair is a man-centered concept, not a God-centered concept. Fair says, you know, I got two jelly beans and you can't have three because that's unfair. You get more than me. Well, there's no, there's no congruence about anything. Some of us were born good looking and some of us were not. Some of us were born tall. Some of us were not. Some of us were born thin and others were not. I came here weighing almost 10 pounds and I ain't got over it yet. I mean, there's so much disparity in the world, right? And you say, well, it's unfair. No, it's not. It's not unfair. It's the plan of God. God intends his people, wherever they are, in whatever situation they're in, to point others to him, to love him, and then to do the same in pointing others to him. And so it doesn't matter today whether you're uh, African or European or Asian, you're Latin. It doesn't matter. These things are man-centered divisions. God is God, and he's God over the whole world of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And he holds every one of them accountable. So hear that as you read Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, past tense, And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules, keep my statutes, and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. How many times in the span of those five verses does the Lord say, I am the Lord? right every verse he reminds them i am the lord i am the lord you don't get to decide you have it's above your pay grade so you don't get to decide who is holy and who is not and you don't get to decide what i intend to do with them that brings us to deuteronomy 18 turn there leviticus 18 to deuteronomy 18 and you'll see here that God gives instructions through Moses regarding the Canaanites. Verse 9, Deuteronomy 18. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who... And what are the sins of the Canaanites? Well, here's the first one child sacrifice. I would ask you this, do you think God loves the little children, or do you think that's just a song? It turns out God does love children, every one of them. He even loves the children of the Canaanites. So what do the Canaanites do? There shall not be found among, anyone, uh, among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer. Necromancing is talking to the dead. 
or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination of the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. By the way, how is God going to drive them out? He's going to bring Judah and Manasseh and Ephraim and all of these tribes of Israel into their neck of the woods, and he's going to kill them. Except they don't do it. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you're about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Disobedience is costly. How costly is it to the Canaanites? Well, God brings about this holy war, just war, because of their sin. Not because God is just willy-nilly or as God is precocious and he he just got up on a bad day and decided he was going to take these folks out or do something crazy. Disobedience is costly, so much so that these things that they practiced, the Canaanites, brought judgment upon them. We live in a world today that suggests that disobedience is not costly. The culture that we swim in day after day after day after day, the culture that's romanticized on television or movies or somewhere that you're uh, consuming information or media, that, that culture suggests that anything goes. Anything goes. You are an independent contractor. You have a right to yourself, to your thinking, to your values, to your body. You have a right to everything. It's you. You are the sole arbiter of everything related to you, and you get to decide. Now, the only problem with that, of course, is it results in anarchy. Or, let me say it another way, it results in the book of Judges. Which brings us to Israel. Disobedience is costly not only for unbelievers, but it's also costly for the people of God. All of which brings us to Judges. Jump forward to chapter 17. If you're looking for a theme verse in the book of Judges, and this is the beginning of the end of the book of Judges, chapter 17, this is the theme verse of the book of Judges. I'm not going to belabor the story, but I'm going to read, come down to the conclusion. Look at verse 6, Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone just did what is right. That phrase is repeated in chapter 18. It's repeated in chapter 19. And it's repeated again in chapter 21. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is that sort of the way our culture has devolved? Yes, everybody gets to be their own God. They get to be their own judge. They get to be their own ruler. They get to be their own arbiter of what's right and wrong. And there's no sense of accountability to a higher God, to a a real God, to the only God. There's no sense of 
living in community with other people and having an obligation to treat them with as much dignity as you would like to be treated. This so-called golden rule turns out is actually pretty golden. There's a sense where I get to do what I want when I want, and if you get in my way, then all I'm going to do is just run over you, or I'm going to abuse you, or I'm going to kill you. There's a sense where our culture has lost its moorings, and its moorings have to be tied ultimately to a higher authority, to an ultimate authority, and if that authority does not come in and act like an authority, then people will degenerate into everyone just does whatever they want. That's the book of Judges. You say, well, you know, God's going to send these great judges. Well, it turns out they're the leaders of tribes. So there's a tribe in the north, has nothing to do with the tribe in the south. There's a tribe in the central, nothing to do with the tribes across the river. There's a tribe across the river, has nothing to do with the tribes over here in modern-day Israel. It turns out they're the leaders of tribes, but they're not the leaders of the people. God used these judges, and they sought, as it were, to be salt and light, to leaven the lump positively for God. They sought to do that. Friend, that's what we get to do. God has not called us to be men and women of compromise. God has called us to be men and women of influence. God has called us to be people who are righteous, who pursue holiness, pursue God, and do not compromise. We don't do whatever's right in our own eyes. We do whatever's right in God's eyes. We have one authority, and that is God. You see, the book of Judges tells us again and again and again that do what God says, and you will be better off. But if you violate the way of God, if you miss the way of God, you stand under the judgment of God. You, you have brought shame and you have brought destruction ultimately to your life. We don't want to live in a culture where everyone simply does what is right in their own eyes. You say, well, how much influence can any of us have? Well, as much as we can. As much as we can. How much influence can you have? I don't know. I suspect none of us know the full capacity of our influence. But God has called us to be men and women of influence, to, to step up. The book of Judges is about people stepping up, broken as they are, which brings us to the last point I want to make quickly, and that is that God utilizes leadership. He utilizes human leadership. I'm going to see this plainly. Let me just give you a little fact here. appreciate uh, one commentator, uh, Dale Davis, who I have the highest respect for, pointed this out. So I want to give him credit. So he, he makes this point that, that several of the Old Testament books begin with the death of a former leader. For instance, Exodus, which we began a workshop tonight, Dr. Park and I, on the book of Exodus. And you will note that the very first thing that's noted in the book of Exodus is the death of Joseph. So Joseph dies and now we have the book of, Je of Exodus. Then the, the book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. The book of Judges begins here with the death of Joshua, and the book of 1 Kings 
begins with the death of David. The death of David. So the death of these human leaders precipitates this next chapter of the plan of God, for the revelation of God, for the work of God. Judges 17, as we said, indicates that there's no king. There's no king. There's no king. There's no king. Now, the solution is going to be, at the end of the book of Judges, they're going to appeal ultimately uh, in the next book to Samuel, and they're going to say, Samuel, we need a king. All these other people have kings, and we need kings. And Samuel says, no, God is your king. God is your king. God is your king. And they said, no, we want a human king, just like all these other people. And you'll remember that as Samuel appeals to God, God, what do we do? God replies and says, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. This is not about you. Not about you. I say this to young pastors all the time. Listen, when, when folks have a disagreement about the Bible, it's not that they hate you, all right? So get over yourself. It's not about you. When you're sharing Christ, somebody rejects Christ. You say, well, I, I, I just, you know, it's, it's just awkward. It's just difficult. I feel like they're rejecting me. No, friend, they're not. You're not that important. You're just the messenger. You're just the guy bringing the meal. You didn't cook it. You didn't prepare it. You didn't polish it up. You didn't present it with parsley or any of that. That's all done back there in the kitchen. Those guys are responsible for what you bring. You're just the guy carrying it. So in this case, what, what's happening here? These, these men are, are serving God, and yet they want more. They want a king. They want like the world has a king. We had Moses, a prophet. We had Joshua, a prophet. We had these former prophets, the, the, the men and women of the judges, and Gideon, and Samson, and Barak, and so forth. We had these people. Now we want a real king. We want a king like the rest of the world. And God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Because my plan is that our, my people would have one king, and that king would be me. And that the, though the world doesn't see me, my people see me. My people love me. My people believe me. My people worship me. My people pray to me. My people hear what I say and do what I say, and they order their lives around my word. This is the way I intend for it to be. That's the church, friend. What is the church about? It is, a, it is an environment where we're saying there is one king, and he is not here in the flesh. But we serve that one king, and we answer to that king. But we utilize human leadership. God utilizes human influence. And the purpose of human influence is to be salt and light in the world. You say, well, I'm not the leader of anything important. Well, of course you are. Every one of you are part of a family. And nothing is more important in your life than your own family. You need to be a priest to your own family. You need to take responsibility for your own family. You need to say, I am going to be salt and light in my own people, with my own clan, with my own family. You must be that. It's your responsibility. And then beyond that, God will multiply. He'll enlarge, as it were, your territory. He'll give you more influence, perhaps. Thanks be to God. He'll give you influence in the church. He'll give you influence in the community. He'll give you influence in your job. He'll give you influence in all kinds of avenues. God intends for you to exercise influence. But ultimately, you do so not because you're following some sort of earthly pattern, but you're following this heavenly pattern. God intends to be their king. But the record of the book of Judges is 
There's no king. And there's no leadership amongst those who are not king to point to the king. What you have in the book of Judges is a bunch of flawed people. Again, I mentioned Gideon and Samson as perhaps the two most famous of all the judges. You'll note that Gideon is a flawed man. This whole thing about praying with a fleece, water, dew on the lamb's skin, so forth, all that. All that is not a testimony to his faith, but rather a testimony to his lack of faith. He just, he just kept asking, okay, I need you to do it one more time. Okay, I just need you to do it one more time. I just, I just, I'm just a little weak. I just, I just need you to do it one more time. And you find in Gideon a flawed man. You say, well, I, I thought he was a bold man. Yeah, he was bold when his army was thousands. But God said, I, I'm not going to let you do that because I want you to learn something about me. So we're going we're gonna to pare this down to 300 people because you're going to learn something about me. That I'm doing things in your life. I'm doing things in your world. I'm doing things in your culture. I'm doing things in my people who you are now in a position to influence. And I'm going to use your situation, flawed as you are, weak as you are, unfaithful to a degree that you are, and I'm going to use you to show them my glory. So the story of Gideon is a story of the power of God. Samson, the story of Samson, it's a, it's a sordid tale. I mean, you talk about crazy, just crazy. The, the, the great blessing that God gave to Samson, the great position of influence that he squanders away and yet in the end, he comes back to God and he calls out to God, help me God, to honor you. And even in his death, he honors God. God takes his flawed leader and he uses him to bring about the judgment that he plans on the Philistines. Samson killed more Philistines in his death than he did his entire life. God is at work in your life in ways that may be mysterious to you. But I'm reminded that God intends for you to exercise leadership in your world. Why are you here? You are here. You're, you're taking up space in this world because you have influence. And God intends for you to exercise that influence. Well, I'd like to command thousands. <laughs> well, get busy with your hundreds. And we'll see about the thousands. Well, I'd like to command hundreds. Well, get busy with your dozens. And then we'll see about the hundreds. I'd like to command my own family. Okay? Get busy. Get busy. God intends to utilize leadership. And he intends for that leadership to be provided by people just like me and you. In fact, who are you and me? Let me leave you with one last thing. Ultimately, the book of Judges is about the failure of man and the success of God. What's the end of the story in the book of Judges? Well, it's sort of like describing my life. I've lived 
several decades now. But if you could go back and take a picture of my life, let's say between the ages of 10 and 20, or maybe 20 and 30, 20 and 30, you might see a certain aspect of me. You might see a certain witness of me. You might see a certain level of influence, a level of faithfulness, or a level of holiness, or, or not. You might see failure. You might, you might see compromise. In fact, I can assure you, you would see all of those things. But my life is not defined by just a piece of me, and neither is yours. Your life is not defined ultimately by everything that's already happened. This book is about the God who works with us until the end. And since all of us are sitting here alive, watching via live stream, the end has not come for us. And God intends for us, no matter what the past was, no matter how many days of compromise, how, how poorly we performed, how much disobedience there was, none of that matters beginning now. What matters now is that we get up and we follow this God, and we follow Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus. The only reason I have the hope of eternal life is because God's plan is not tied up in Gideon or Samson, or Barak, or Deborah, or any of these other judges. Turns out, they are persons of influence to point us to the king, or to the coming king. It turns out, our faithfulness plays a role in being a cheerleader toward the king. There are people who need to know the king. Do they need to know me? Absolutely not. Do they need you? No, they don't need you, unless they do. Unless you're in the catbird seat, friend, of being a person of influence in their life, God wants you to be salt and light and pointing them to the Savior, to the King. The problem in Judges is a failure of leadership to point them ultimately to the King of Kings. In the end, the solution is we need a King because we've lived with you for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. And we don't hear a lot of king pointing going on in your life. We need a king. We need a king. Turns out he's been here under our nose the whole time. He's right here in front of us. He's right here among us. I don't know your status today before the Lord. Whether you know him as Lord. Maybe you've been chasing rainbows and butterflies. Maybe you've been chasing your tail. I don't know. Maybe you don't have a savior, friend. You don't have a king. All you got is you. You're just doing what's right in your eyes. And the book of Judges is pretty much ground zero for the fact that that's going to lead to a great deal of heartache. May God spare us. May God rescue us. And there's good news. He sent his son to do just that. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, do it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We read the book of Judges, and we know that there are men and women that you use who are just like us. They're flawed, they're broken, they're disconnected in various ways, and yet you use their lives. For that, we thank you. Pray your blessings upon these who are here. Pray that you would
Point us to Christ afresh. Remind us the only Savior. The only one who truly satisfies. The only one who gives grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Is Jesus. Oh Lord, give us Jesus. Thank you. That we get to study your scripture together. First in Christ's name we pray. Amen.